Welcome back to Season 2 of the Distilling Craft Podcast. You're listening to Episode 9, Be Prepared. Distilling Craft is brought to you by Dalkita, a group of architects and engineers who specialize in designing craft distilleries across the U.S. More information is available at our website, dalkita.com. That's D-A-L-K-I-T-A dot com. Hey guys, Colleen Moore here from Dalkita and your host for this episode of the Distilling Craft Podcast. When I last left you, we were doing our annual survey to find out more about what you wanted to hear on this show. And as a thank you to those of you who took three minutes out of your day to complete it, we held a drawing for a $100 gift pack of Colorado local goodies. And our winner was Liz Rhodes from Spirit Safe Consulting up in the beautiful garden state of New Jersey. Now, I set that survey to close right before the virtual ACSA convention, which honestly wasn't very clever. So I actually extended it through the convention and we drew another winner for a $50 gift pack specifically from the kind ACSA members that gave me their feedback. And that winner was Max Marin from Bentley Heritage in Nevada, the Silver State. I sent each of the winners a fully custom gift box of local Colorado goodies from Colorado Crafted. One of the items inside those boxes was whiskey barrel aged honey, and we're going to tell you a little bit more about that product later in the show. So what did we learn from the survey? Well, there were a couple of surprise curveballs, like you want to hear heaps more about the TTB and legal issues something that wasn't a surprise you want more process information i'm glad to report back to you that we are tackling this particular problem in a very near future episode with a series of special guests all about process pitfalls in a number of different processes and process types inside the still house so keep an ear out for those stories in upcoming shows Now, if you want to nominate an industry peer for me to get on the show and then quiz them all about their secret processes, tips, and tricks, I'm open to it. Drop me a message from our website. On today's show, I've got a collection of shorter stories for you. And first up is a new semi-regular feature from friend of the show, Mark Schilling. Now, Mark's been on our show in a previous episode specifically about RTDs and keeps a crazy busy schedule with a lot of activities that includes lobbying on behalf of all distillers for federal excise tax relief and heading up Uncle Billy's RTD line. Plus, he works with the Texas Distillers Guild and runs his own spirits consultancy. Welcome back to the show, Mark. Hi, Colleen. Thanks for having me on today. You bet. So talk to me about some of the things happening in the legislative world. I know uh, there's the FET tax reduction is still an issue. Um, Tell me a little bit about what's happening there. Well, so as you know, we're going on about 10 years now in our effort to create permanent excise tax parity for, for small distilleries. We, at the end of 2017, were successful in passing the CBMTRA, Craft Beverage Modernization and Tax Reform Act. That's Uh, a mouthful. It is. Um, But, uh, you know, we we passed it as a temporary two-year measure. And so what's happened is we've gotten thrown into the endless cycle of 
end of the year tax extenders. You know, there are a number of, of tax provisions in, in code that expire and have to be uh, reauthorized every year, every other year. Uh, there are a couple that I think last a little bit further further out than that. So, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to move forward and, and get into permanency. We have, uh, despite COVID, we have not let up on our, on our efforts. Uh, I feel like we're still making progress. We have an unprecedented number of sponsors for the legislation in both the House and the Senate, approximately 75%, three quarters of both chambers have signed on as sponsors. It is very rare that you see a piece of legislation that has that much um, official formal support. You would think just that in and of itself would be enough to get this thing passed. Sounds like a slam dunk, honestly. It should be. And, you know, in, in any state legislature in the country, it would be. But Congress operates a little bit differently. There, the rules are, are different. There's an amount of inertia that is much more difficult to overcome. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're continuing to make progress. We heard from Ron Wyden, our Senate sponsor of the bill, yesterday at the ACSA virtual town hall. He gave a great update and some advice on what we should be doing, which is to continue to talk to our, our individual representatives and senators in our states uh, and to continue to work with our cousins in beer, wine, and cider to present a united front. They've got issues in the, in the bill as well. And, uh, you know, he is, he's bullish. Um, you know, all of the legislation around COVID, the CARES Acts 1, 2, and 3, and, and things still under consideration have obviously taken precedence up there. We have been talking with leadership about having this rolled into a CARES uh, Act bill. Uh, my guess is that's probably not going to happen. It's just not seen as a priority the same way as the other measures. So, you know, uh, our best case is another tax extender at the end of the year. Um, you know, possibly, you know, post-election, possibly lame duck session. And, um, you know, we've, we've talked with uh, Chairman uh, Grassley in the Senate, uh, Senate Finance Chair, and Richie Neal, Chair of the House Ways and Means Committee, uh, they're both on board. They're both committed. They've both indicated that they would like to see this done this year. Um, again, I, I don't know what will happen if, uh, you know, it, it's got to be at least extended by the end of the year. Just to catch people up, what happens if it is not extended? What is the this the doomsday scenario for that expires at the end of the year? What does January 1st start looking like for well, Spirit I, I Sales? The same as what happened uh, at the end of, of 2017, there's going to be a lot of discussion amongst distilleries about moving product out of bond and getting it sold uh, before the end, or, or if if you have the, the the space, moving it out of bond and paying taxes on it, leaving it in your distillery until you can get rid of it. Uh, because at midnight on uh, at the end of the year, that tax rate is going to go up, and so until it is fixed, then you're going to pay the full freight on on all of that product. Okay, and just as a reminder for maybe a new listener, what is the federal excise tax rate right now? 
the current rate, the reduced rate is $2.70 per proof gallon, up to 100,000 proof gallons removed per year. The original rate and the rate that it would go back to is $13.50. That is, I believe, a 400% increase, right? Yeah, 400% increase in taxes. So It's a lot of money to a small distillery. Absolutely. And a lot of money even more so now that they're dealing with income restrictions from tasting room closures and restrictions on being open and things like that. Absolutely. You know, a lot of distilleries have lost uh, you know, so many opportunities, so many channels for, for revenue. If your tasting room is closed, you're probably giving up somewhere between 25 and 50 percent of your, your gross revenues right now. So that would be a painful thing. So what what can a, a distiller that's listening to this podcast do to support FET taxes or revisions? Call your congressman. Uh, if, you, if you haven't done it yet, get in touch with them. Make sure they know about the legislation. Um, if Ask them to sign on if they haven't already. Um, I don't know. I wanted to ask Senator Wyden this, and I didn't have a chance to, um, whether or not there's a magic number. If we have, you know, if we get 100 senators to sign on in the Senate, does that mean it's a done deal? Um, or are they still going to screw around with the process and, and wait to, to stick it in another bill or something like that? Same question in the House. Is there a magic number at which you cannot, the Speaker can no longer ignore the number? and absolutely must move it on its own. And I don't know the answer to that, but that's a, a long way around saying there are still a handful of members in each chamber that have not signed on, and if we can get them signed on, that's a benefit. Um, it's not just about signing on, though. It's, it's not just will you support the bill, it's will you actively support the bill and engage with your colleagues on the Hill and get some movement on it, because we need it now, not next year, not two years from now. Um, and the other thing, although it may be depressed in a lot of cases, if you've been actively talking to potential investors, um, you know, investors want certainty in the market. They want to know what they're getting into. And if you can't tell them what your tax picture is going to look like over the next six months or year or five years, um, you know, that's a red flag. It's a giant unstable question mark and they are not fans of those, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And we all want a stable and successful economy. Congress wants a stable and successful economy. So we can all work together and do the right thing and make this happen. Okay. So FET action. We should call our congressmen. I'm assuming we might be able to get a list of the, the holdouts on the Hill that we could potentially. Yeah. I don't have one super handy, but it's easy. We can stick it in together. the show notes. Yeah. Yep. I will get that to you. Sounds good. Absolutely. Now, another big thing happening in this legislative arena is the revision of the dietary guidelines from, I think, the USDA. Tell me a little bit about what is happening there. Yeah. So, you know, this is a thing that is um, has not been widely reported. And uh, if you haven't been paying attention, you may not be aware of this. But every five years, uh, the USDA and Health and Human Services get together and they update and revise their guidelines on uh, dietary uh, standards, right? Uh, 
So they put out an 800 plus page report um, recommending changes for standards, you know, in, in every consumable you can imagine. There is a chapter of about 30 pages on alcohol consumption. And what they've done is they have, you know, the, the, the standard for, for many years, for decades, has been two drinks per day for a man and one drink per day for a woman. Now, obviously, there are a lot of details um, involved in that that we could discuss, you know. Um, it's Metabolic real, math that could happen. Right. <laughs> Size, weight, metabolism, underlying health conditions, uh, a really short and skinny man versus a, a tall and large woman, um, you know, it, even that it's a guideline, right? Right. Exactly. The, the 2000 calorie diet for me would make me lose weight because, or make me gain weight because I am too short <laughs> to eat that many calories a day. Right. But that standard was based on decades of research peer-reviewed, well-qualified, um, you know, abundant research, even if it has some, some flaws or some nuances in it. What they've done with this new uh, document is they have recommended revising the standard down for men from two drinks per day to one. That's a significant shift. <laughs> it's like a 50% reduction in moderate drinking, right? And they've made no uh, recommendation on changing the standard for women. So they're bringing the, the, the man standard down to the woman standard. And in a lot of cases that might be fair and equitable and correct. <laughs> and it might even be true in science that that is correct. But what they've done is they've made what, uh, if you read through that chapter, it sounds like almost by their own admission is they didn't have, enough qualified data to make this recommendation so they kind of made it up make the recommendation first and get the science to hopefully follow up later it sounds like and i've looked through this chapter i've read part of it i haven't read the whole thing word for word um, my understanding is they are relying on the results of exactly one study to make this change despite decades of, of studies and research saying otherwise. The question, what can you do about it? Um, probably nothing, because the deadline for comments is midnight tonight. Uh-oh. And uh, nobody's going to see this until next week. But I will tell you, I have written comments that I will be submitting later. ACSA has submitted comments. There are... Um, by my understanding, about 24,000 comments that have been submitted. Uh, I submitted a comment through, I think, Spirits United sent out a thing about it. So I did that. Lots of comments being submitted. I don't know when it will be final or what will happen. Um, but the if, the if there's any silver lining in this, I would say that, have, or, or I'd rather ask you the question, have you ever met anyone who was aware of the guidelines for drinks per day who actually gave a shit about it? <laughs> it's fair. <laughs> uh, I don't and think I, it will change anything. I do think it's a legitimate scientific question to ask, is there or should there be a limit on alcohol consumption or a, or a, a guideline on how much 
you know, within some period of time or something is good or bad for you. But let's do it based on real science and, and evidence, not just make up a number and then try and justify it. Well, that is definitely enough to keep our plates full, but you promised to talk about some tariffs and even uh, direct-to-consumer sales, but we might have to do that in another episode. Let's do that in another episode and uh, kind of spread it out a little bit. And um, it's even, I may have better, uh, more up-to-date information on both of those topics next time. Sounds good. Well, thanks for stopping by with that bright and sunny news from the legislative arena. And we will talk with you again soon. Thanks so much, Mark. Thanks, Colleen. We'll see you. Thanks for that update, Mark. Mark's going to be joining us a little more often with quick legislative updates just like this one. If something is happening in your part of the world that should be covered on our show, make sure you hit me up via email at colleen at dalkeeda.com. That's C-O-L-L-E-E-N at dalkeeda, D-A-L-K-I-T-A dot com. The Distilling Craft Podcast is brought to you in part by our great sponsors, Fermentus, the obvious choice for beverage fermentation, providing the craft spirits industry worldwide with the best fermentation yeasts for more than 100 years. Contact our sales team to help make your choice on yeasts and products for distilling your next great spirit. For more information or to find a distributor, visit Fermentus.com. That is F-E-R-M-E-N-T-I-S.com. With all the apocalyptic scenes happening outside of our windows these days, another brutal fire season in the western U.S., Category 4 hurricanes in Louisiana and Texas, we've got record droughts and partly scattered flooding in other areas of the country, I thought it would be a good idea to focus on what we can do now to better prepare for resiliency in the future. What better way to do that than to talk with someone that has been there and lived to tell the tale? Our next segment today comes from Craig Inglehorn of Spirit Hound out of Lyons, Colorado. Now let me set the scene for you. In September 2013, a cold front stalled over the front range of Colorado and dumped torrential rain that was described at the time as biblical in a bona fide 100-year storm. The amount of precipitation on northern Colorado broke all precipitation records and the Loveland Dam and flooded north northern Colorado with over 13,000 acre-feet of water. Nine people died. Thousands of people lost their home. Spirit Hound, located in Lyons, Colorado, was right in the middle of that disaster. And Craig Inglehorn is here today to talk about the emergency prep lessons that they learned from their hard-won experience of surviving that massive flood in 2013, how they recovered, and what plans they have in place now to face the uncertainty in the future. So, how is everything up there in Lyons today? Everything is beautiful. It's a gorgeous day. It's awesome. So, tell me a little bit about um, how it was a few years ago with um, the horrible rains and then resulting dam break at Loveland and then ridiculous flooding. Yeah, ridiculous flooding is right. I mean, I don't think there were, what, five or six canyons that were severely flooded. Um, and we're at the bottom end of two of them, the St. Vrain 
uh, north and south St. Vrain rivers. We uh, left that Wednesday evening, uh, closing up, uh, having had customers in, and you know our phones all blew up with flood alerts, and nobody made fun of it or anything. But you know we didn't expect what we got. Uh, ultimately, I ended up spending the night here uh, because my truck didn't start when I went to leave, and uh, you know that was about midnight or so. If I had looked around a little bit, like at the backyard where the kind of where the river is. I would have realized what was happening. So I crashed on the couch and woke up at 5.30 in the morning to this gurgling sound, which was the uh, uh, river in the distillery. Um, and uh, took a bunch of pictures and looked around and, you know, basically was stuck here for about a day and a half. We ended up uh, with, you know, 16 or 18 inches of water in the building. Uh, anybody that's been in a flood knows that, gosh, more than a quarter inch. I mean, any no 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 amount of flood water is is good, you know. Uh, so uh, our whole town was uh, severely disrupted. We lost 20% of the housing in Lyons. Uh, the town was evacuated for about a two-month period. Uh, initially, the checkpoint uh, was outside far enough that we weren't able even to get into the business and see what was going on. Once I was able to get out of here. Uh, then basically couldn't get back in, you know. Uh, it took us a couple of months. By the time the town was ready to turn utilities on, we had things kind of ready to go so we could start back up. And then uh, I'd say maybe we were pretty much back to you know normal in about six months. Uh, it, it took a long. It was a long recovery time. So what do you guys do? Uh, now, do you guys have a disaster plan now? We do. It's rough, but uh, we learned a lot. Uh, there are some very simple things we could do and could have done had we known just to get a few things off the floor. You know, and I've got a whole list of things, if you want me to just go through them, of uh, things that I, I think people should do. Uh, now, obviously, first of all, flood, fire, whatever it might be, you know, everybody's got to be safe. So. You know, if your first responders come in and say, you got to go, you got to go. I understand you want to take care of your stuff, but, you know, let's all survive this and we can put it back together later. After that, uh, one of the things we had was a file cabinet on the first floor. And fortunately, nothing really important was in the bottom drawer, but some really important stuff was in the next drawer up. And uh, I was able to grab all of that and bring it upstairs since I was here. But it included things like, you know, our TTB permit and our state permit and, you know, all of our reports that we had filed. We were only 10 months old at the time, but it was it was all of my paperwork, uh, which, you know, very nearly completely got destroyed. I did lose paperwork. Fortunately, nothing that was, you know, mission critical. So for us, uh, you know, we've learned some things. So permits, you know, your uh, licenses that are on the wall, all of that stuff uh, is precious and you know, we know where it is. It's an, an easy place to get. I suggest, you know, you put together a bug out list and, uh, you know, if you got to, if you got to get out of there quick, you know, grab the most important things like your federal permit. So you don't have to, I mean, it's online and all that, but it's, it's good to have, right? Your most important paperwork, you know, your licenses on the wall, uh, all of those things that could easily be destroyed or lost, even in the cleanup. We, uh, now store our, uh, all of our, uh, federal paperwork, you know, reports and stuff uh, in a software system that's backs up off-site. So if our computer gets destroyed, 
we haven't lost our records. If this had, you know, it, during the flood, if our computer had been soaked, well, too bad. SOL. Yep, all those spreadsheets are gone. Another thing that happened to us personally during the flood was our local post office had moved to Longmont, neighboring town. And during the period of the flood, our state license uh, renewal came to us. And in the mess of going to Longmont to pick up our mail and this place just being, you know, a, a mess, we, uh, we lost the renewal form. We, we just never saw it. And frankly, a license renewal was not anywhere on our brain, right? So uh, fast forward a little bit, uh, that next June, uh, I was looking at our license to do an event and realized it had lapsed and called the state and they said, well, you're uh, 93 days out, so you're going to have to reapply from the beginning. Uh. So, uh, you know, my begging and pleading did no good. They were great in terms of pushing it through. We got the governor involved and it only took about three days to do 45 days worth of work. So they really were very good to us. But it's a good example of, you know, keep, keep on top of that kind of stuff. Even though you're scooping mud, you know, watch, have somebody take care of your mail, have a list in an easy place of when your renewals come up, when your sales tax renewal, whatever your license might be. So you don't lose track of them. Uh, yeah, and then uh, you know, just kind of basic stuff. Get your get get a list of stuff if you, if you, if it's a water issue that you can just move off the ground up to a higher floor, up onto a couple pallets. One pallet in our case wasn't high enough, so you know, grain, sugar. We had labels on on pallets. Anything on pallets got destroyed. Also, uh, find a way to try to protect your revenue stream. Uh, in our case we were able to ship a pallet of gin to our distributor uh, that we had produced uh, and was, you know, product that was high enough, it was all dry and nice uh, because, you know, the bills, they keep coming in and some, some things get waived. You know, the, the federal government will like, like let you get by in your tax payments and things like that. They'll, they'll give you some leniency, but you know, the, and I think our mortgage company actually was good to us as well, but a lot of other things, you know, our electric bill still kept coming and our gas bill, we didn't have any gas, but we still got a bill for it. Uh, so you got to have to, you, you got to still cash flow somehow. The other thing that we did was we were right next, at some point, we were right next to the checkpoint coming into Lyons. And so people could kind of get to us. And so we did cash sales, you know, writing things down on a piece of paper. And we had no computer, no POS system. Uh, but every dollar we got was critical to keeping the place alive. And kind of in conjunction with that, in terms of the cash flow, everybody should go double check their insurance policies and see what's covered and see what's not. Uh, we had flood insurance. We were super lucky for that because the FEMA maps had just changed about six months before the flood. So lucky for us, we were, we were forced to get insurance and we did. Uh, and it saved our butts. But what we didn't do is we didn't uh, attach that insurance as a rider on our business insurance. So what the building, the property, the things that were mortgaged, that was covered, but no loss of business expense or, or business income, no, uh, you know, all the grain we threw away, all that stuff, none of it was covered. Um, and even though we did, you know, at least get the money we needed to rebuild the building, uh, we took a pretty sizable hit 
and it slowed our growth down significantly because again we were only 10 months old when the flood hit so you know we we weren't filling barrels of whiskey very fast for that next year because we had to pay all these bills that it cost us to you know get our stuff back together some other kind of practical things that you won't think about uh, as the disaster is starting especially i know in california you know power is going on and off things like that you need to isolate your equipment electrically uh, if you have three-phase equipment three-phase pumps get that stuff turned off or uh, set it up with breakers that detect the loss of one phase and drop the other two so you don't just burn up motors or compressors uh, uh, steam boilers if you have a steam boiler uh, and it's going to be down for a period of time uh, they usually have some pretty intricate just, uh, instructions about uh, purging them, right? So you, you drain them, uh, say you're in an area that's going to be cold, you got to drain it, it's going to freeze, and uh, rather than letting it sit with oxygen and uh, corrode, you purge them with nitrogen to make sure everything's okay. So if your boiler's going to be down for a month or two and empty, uh, you don't want it just sitting there rotting away while you're gone. And, you know, pragmatically secure your premises against looting. Uh, unfortunately, at these times, people come out of the woodwork and like to take your stuff. So uh, whatever that might be, sometimes, again, like our case, we couldn't even get to the building for the first week or so. Uh, and then after that, lucky for us, the National Guard checkpoint was directly across the street. And uh, Lieutenant Curtis uh, took pride in he paid attention to our stuff. He gave people crap over here a couple times that were in our parking lot. He's like, what are you doing? What, what, what are you guys here for? So, uh, you know, I don't, if that means getting a person in there or something, because uh, the last thing you want to do is, you know, lose your, lose your assets when, you know, uh, you're already down and out. Those are great tips. Yeah, a couple more things real quick. One thing that worked really well for us, get a hold of cleanup crews immediately. Get a hold of contractors immediately you don't think you're ready find drywall crews and whatever it might be call them first if you're first in line you'll get your business back up faster than others uh, we were lucky that we did that and it worked extremely well for us uh, and during during the cleanup you know uh, everybody needs food and water and if your town has been burned or flooded or whatever there's probably not a place to eat uh, or get water so uh, uh, it might even be worth having a little stash of emergency water and some MREs honestly uh, wouldn't cost much and would help in the short term uh, and kind of in that vein we you know I never thought in my life I would be eating Red Cross lunches uh, or Salvation Army lunches and uh, at the other end of the charity if you will so I suggest that we all support those organizations because you never know when you might be the recipient and it was a godsend for us in our little town because there we would have to drive you know 20 miles to go get food if 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 they weren't right here uh, and then deal with the checkpoints and all that stuff as well yeah well my family had a house fire and they had a home-based business um, and I was in the process of actually moving out to Colorado 20 years ago, and they had lightning strike the house and blow out all of the outlets, which then caught everything like curtains and bedspreads and stuff on fire. And so, you know, having gone through a fire and lost all of that stuff, um, my heart goes out to everybody in California because it's like this horrible combination of like impending disaster like you would have for a hurricane 
on top of power outages, on top of a forest fire. Do you know what I mean? And so, yeah, it's like all of those things all rolled up into one. And and yeah, so these are really great tips um, for a fire, um, a fireproof safe is probably a good idea. Uh, and then again, also probably getting that stored up off the floor so that you're fire and water resistant. So um, you can also get them waterproof, but you know, keeping the water away from it is probably a better idea <laughs> in that situation. Yeah, totally. Um, but yeah, so tell me about, you. so you were only 10 months old. How big is your distillery? You'd gotten everything started. What products were you producing at the time? Okay, at that time we were, we had produced six barrels of whiskey um, filled. Uh, we produced a gin, a vodka, and we had a coffee liqueur. And then in our tasting room, we were doing some infusions to do other cocktails and things. So we were just getting off the ground. Uh, I think we might have had our uh, a moonshine product, which is basically the whiskey, you know, before the barrels. And uh, we were, you know, relatively small. We had just started distributing with the distributor. We'd self-distributed from the beginning, uh, but we were a pretty small footprint on the Front Range, Colorado here. And, uh, you know, I don't even know what we packed for cases that year. And so um, with the, so you had about six barrels. Was there anything that you could have done in advance, like, you know, so you start hearing the gurgling sound and the river is literally in the distillery. Uh, but I think the thing that made that the disaster that it was, was the dam breaking, right? Yeah, and for us, we weren't in the path of that. So uh, we uh, we were lucky that we, we didn't get that particular bump of water, but uh, I watched the water go up and down all day long and all night long. Uh, I was in here for, you know, day and a half or so. And uh, it generally was lurking around two feet deep on the outside of the front of the building. Uh, sometimes it would come up a little, sometimes it would go down a little. Um, again, ugh. <laughs> it's kind of gross to think about it. <laughs> yeah. All the stuff that, that flood water brings in with it is really gross as well. Like you, you look at these pristine mountain streams, right? But when they get moving and they kick up all the silt and they pick up detritus and debris and you know, garbage and houses and things that it wasn't really supposed to touch and it goes and touches all that and it starts bringing it downstream, uh, it is a mess to clean up. So I'm glad you guys got through it. Um, how long do you think it was between I guess maybe the National Guard arriving with the checkpoints to opening back up full full strength. Opening back up full strength was probably three or four months. We did do a Halloween party. You know, we had a porta potty. We had no running water. We used a bucket for a dump sink. And again, there's no. We just did donations. We put up a jar and we'll give you drinks and you know it was a little it was kind of cathartic for the town to people needed something and people showed up in in droves it was a huge party and i think people really appreciated the chance to kind of forget about the fact that we're cleaning up the mess but you know immediately after the party we of course had to continue cleaning up the mess um, and we didn't really open uh until 
late November, early December. Uh, and again, I was really trying to get, you know, we had to replace our boiler. We had all this stuff to do and we worked very hard to get everything done so that when the utilities got turned on, we were actually ready for it. Right. Um, and that was part of that getting those contractors in to, you know, put the walls back together. We had a cleanup crew come in and just, you know, gut everything and dry it all out. And then, well, now you're just looking from one room into the other because everything's gone, you know? Right. Um, so. How much of the drywall did they have to take off? Did they do the thing where they only took four feet or something off the floor? You've got historic drywall, everything from four feet up. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and four feet down is all new because it had to be, right? That's exactly what you got. Uh, and back in our borough room, you can see it. There's, you know, paint from four feet up and there's maybe primer, maybe not. I don't, I don't I think it's just mud and tape, but that's still back there, you know. There's still one garage door that has a, a dirt line on it. You know, we just never cleaned it off. Can people come in for tours? Yeah, it's like, yeah, right there. That's how you can see how deep the water is. Nice. So, but, uh, you know, really, I think it took probably about six months for everything to, to come back. And, you know, you were talking about the flood water being disgusting. One of our problems was the town sewer plant is directly upstream from us. Yes, that is that is an issue. It was gross. It, it smelled. Yeah. So, yeah, it's one of those things where you've got to have the rubber boots and that oh, yes. that plastic Tyvek bodysuit starts to look really good, you know. <laughs> well, what did you do with your six uh, barrels of whiskey? Did they have to dispose of it or did you, they make it out alive? It made it out alive. We had, in fact, I still have the first barrel we ever produced, which is one of those flood barrels. And we did a release in August of 2015 of five of the first six barrels and generated some buzz because they were flood survivors, you know, like the tornado whiskey and, uh, right. you know, there, there'll be barrel warehouse falling down whiskey and all kinds right. of stuff in, in Kentucky. But uh, we had a barrel of rum as well uh, that was pretty young. It was only four or five months. And again, we need cash flow, right? We we haven't had any revenue going on for a couple of months. So we designated this as flood rum. We had the local fire protection district come by and sign the first two cases of bottles. And we used those as a fundraiser. We auctioned them off. Uh, the first bottle went for $1,000. Um, and all that money went to the fire department. Uh, they lost a building, an entire building in the flood. So, uh, we ended up raising basically $10,000 for the fire department just off of that one barrel of whiskey or rum, I'm sorry, flood rum. Uh, and that was kind of our, that was a little bit of our feel good give back out of this whole mess. You know, I was happy that we did it uh, and it, it, you know, it made us feel good to do it, but I wouldn't want to do it again. So do you do something every year or every five years for them or how does that work into spirit hounds? Um, program, I guess, with the community. Is it part of it? We uh, we basically set a time frame that once they got their uh, build new building built and everything, you know, they uh, until that point, which took three or four years, we the, the fire protection district was our charity of choice. So if we did anything and raised money for charity, the donation all went to the fire protection district. Those are good friends to have. Yes, yes. You know, they didn't come and get me, but I'm not holding that against them. Nice. 
they were maybe busy with other people. <laughs> they were. Yeah. So um, tell me, give me like a synopsis because Lyons is a small town in Colorado. Um, and so I imagine lots of people have not been there. So give us kind of like a snapshot of what the town looks like. Lyons is a little old west town, uh, maybe 2,000 people in the city limits right now. When I moved here 20 years ago, it was about 1,500 people. You know, very two blocks worth of Main Street. Uh, it's in the crack of the foothills on the way up to Estes Park, uh, about and, and we're about 15 miles north of Boulder. It's uh, historically been a quarry town, so uh, red sandstone comes from Lyons. It's kind of famous for that. Uh, if you go down to uh, the Red Rocks Amphitheater, a lot of people nationwide know about Red Rocks, uh, and you sit on the on the sandstone seats there. That's all lion sandstone that was put down there in the, I think, 1933 or so uh, by the uh, Works Progress Administration. Other than that, Lyons is, uh, you know, a lot of families that have lived here for years and years. Uh, it's, uh, you know, a little town where, you know, kind of everybody knows your business. And after the disaster, uh, it's the kind of town where everybody comes to help you. Uh, we had an incredible volunteer organization uh, and a couple of people that put that together and stuck with it uh, for years. Uh, I got to work with them on several Saturdays doing things like, you know, re-landscaping somebody's front yard uh, or putting uh, sealant on their basement foundation after the place got rebuilt. Uh, just, you know, everything. People would go muck out mud from basements. We had a lot of uh, engineers and uh, you know surveyors and construction crews come through Lyons that were working on the highways up here and working in the town. And because we were right by the checkpoint, they would pull into our parking lot, kind of circle their wagons and get you know a plan ready for what they're going to do that day. So I talked to a lot of people from all over the country who had done you know Hurricane Katrina and Sandy and all these other natural disasters and. They, the universal message I got from them was uh, they were really impressed with the attitude of the people in Lyons and the, just the effort. You know, everybody was, you know, they're still laughing and their sleeves are rolled up and they're helping each other out. And we benefited from that as well. We had Lyons volunteers come to the distillery and roll up their sleeves and clean up crap. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> So tell me about the products that you guys are making now and kind of, I guess, how far you've come as the phoenix rose from the ashes, if you will, or the floodwaters, however yeah, right. that works. We have come a long ways. Uh, uh, we're one of the older distilleries in Colorado, uh, which is kind of funny to say because, you know, I think the oldest one is 16 or 17 years old. Uh, we were seven, maybe going on eight years old now in terms of like when we very first started trying to get our paperwork and all that stuff. So now uh, we're producing our flagship product is a straight malt whiskey, which is 100% uh, malted barley, all from the Alamosa area, the San Luis Valley in southern Colorado. So our whiskey is and always has been a 100% Colorado product. We do that as a single barrel 
expression exclusively. We don't blend, we don't marry any barrels together, uh, except one time by accident. And basically, yeah, you know, things happen. Basically, that is our flagship. The And we do all full-size barrels, so 53-gallon whiskey barrels. So, so far, all a number three jar. It's a pretty outstanding whiskey. We've gotten a lot of kudos. Uh, we do well with Jim Murray, the Whiskey Bible. Uh, you know, we get medals whenever we enter things. So, uh, uh, when our fans love us, so we have some pretty rabid fans, which is, you know, ties with being spirit hounds, I guess. In addition to that, we have uh, a specialty whiskey that we do. Uh, we call it Colorado Honey. We have a collaboration with the local apiary up in Berthoud, Colorado, about I don't know, 30 minutes from here, where we empty a whiskey barrel to bottle, and we give them the barrel, and they whiskey barrel age honey. They put 300 pounds of honey into the barrel for three months, rotate it around for three months, and then when they dump the honey out, we get the barrel back. And so we take another barrel of whiskey that it would be two and a half or so years old, so not just like brand new whiskey, still qualifies as straight. It goes into the honey barrel for another three months or so, because, you know, the honey jar, you can't get all the honey out of it. It's, it's not like we're pouring honey into the whiskey, but we're getting this lovely honey essence and a little sweetness from just what's stuck to the inside of the barrel. That's uh, That's been an outstanding product, and it's kind of, you know, we don't have a lot of it. It's a little bit rare. Uh, I could sell a lot more if I could make more. So We tell those bees to get on it. I know, right? I know. <laughs> uh, in a different direction, we have uh, currently three different gins. Uh, our signature gin, uh, the, kind of the hallmark of it is uh, the juniper berries are picked locally. So uh, I have a deal with my customers. You go bring me a little baggie of juniper berries, and I will give you a gin drink for free. Nice. Uh, That's a good motivation. Absolutely. My best juniper picker is uh, a wonderful woman by the name of Eleanor. She's 86 years old, and she <laughs> picks juniper berries and cleans them and puts them in fat quart bags stuffed full and brings them down, and I just give her a bottle of gin because she doesn't really like to sit at the bar. Uh, she's amazing. And then... Uh, our second gin is basically the same gin, but we uh, run it through the botanicals two times, so it's uh, double distilled. We do vapor-infused gin, so we have a basket that the vapors hang, or the botanicals hang in the column. And the third gin is a barrel-finished version of our original gin, uh, which is a brand-new barrel, uh, 53 gallon again. Put gin in it about. Uh, gosh, I think 135 proof or so, and given only six months. Uh, we don't want to have the wood kind of overpower the botanicals. Our gin's kind of delicate to begin with, and it makes a pretty nice marriage. We get a lot of super, like, uh, nutmeggy Christmas spice kind of characters out of it. Good for the holiday season. Oh, gosh, we have a rum, as I mentioned before. Uh, we, ha we have a uh, creme de cacao. Uh, our newest version is using some uh, single-origin Dominican cacao nibs. Uh, you know, fair trade and all that happy stuff. We have, uh, well, we have Sambuca, right? Uh, we have what we call Colorado Sambuca. It's an infusion of elderberries and star anise pods, and it is outstanding. It's deep burgundy color and beautiful and wonderful. So tell me about Sambuca. I've heard of it before, but I don't know about it at all. So tell me about, I guess, it generally and then how your product kind of fits into that general okay sambuca is a is an italian liqueur 
it's either named out of the elderberries that are in it, uh, which is the, the Latin is Sambucus nigra, uh, or from the town Sambuca in Italy. So, you know, I don't know which is which or, you know, who knows how that rolled out. I feel like both could be true. It's probably some of both, right? It, yeah, I would agree. And uh, Sambuca typically is uh, an anise-based liqueur. So that kind of black licorice character, right? Which a lot of old spirits, uh, you know, anisette, uh, uh, arak, all of these old, you know, ouzo, Mediterranean spirits typically used anise. And uh, uh, the addition of elderberries in our particular uh, version uh, in that that it's an infusion we get this nice not really sweetness from the berries but this berry thickness and berry flavor that sort of backs up and makes the uh, anise much more complex uh, it's super delicious there are three varieties of sambuca white which is clear which is distilled romana sambuca is probably the big national or international brand that people are familiar with and then there's a red Sambuca, which has some red color from the berries. And then there's a black Sambuca, which is really deep, deep red, actually, uh, which is probably what ours is technically. But we call it a red Sambuca. And we use the name Colorado Sambuca for two reasons. First, we have to use Colorado because uh, the TTB wants us to use a geographical designation that shows it's not Italian. And second, uh, Colorado and some versions of Spanish means the color red. So it is red Sambuca and it's from Colorado. Perfect. And it's that red sandstone in Lyons. It's all coming together, right? Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Craig, you've given us some really great tips on disaster prep. Um, and I really want to thank you for coming on our show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I hope that, you know, my list of stuff helped someone. And as people have gone through this kind of disaster, our hearts go out to you. It's terrible. We feel your pain. But the good thing is, is that you can rebuild and it is possible. It's a long road, but it is one that is often traveled and there is a path to success. So thank you again for your tips and we will talk with you soon. Distilling Craft is brought to you by Dalkita, a group of architects and engineers who specialize in designing craft distilleries across the U.S. More information is available at our website, dalkita.com. That's D-A-L-K-I-T-A dot com. Now let's get back to the show. In our current period of extreme social and environmental stress, let's take a moment to spare a thought about how we can prepare ourselves to survive the unexpected. Though, honestly, at this point in 2020, can we even be surprised anymore? A big thank you to Craig for his thoughts and lessons learned on what was important in his distillery setup. Next up, we have another story from Northern Colorado. B Squared is in Berthoud, Colorado, and they produce a whiskey barrel aged honey with used barrels from several suppliers, including Spirit Hound. The product won a 2020 Good Food Award and is one of the items our survey winners from earlier in the show got in their prize packs. Beth talks with us about developing this product and the state of bees in the Rocky Mountain region. Let's jump into it. So Beth Conray and James Erickson are here today with us from B Squared Apiaries out in Berthoud, Colorado, to talk with us about their barrel-aged 
honey. They're whiskey barrel aged honey. So James, tell me about uh, where the idea came from for the whiskey barrel aged honey. So we were looking for some new infusions to add to our line. Um, and whiskey barrel aging is kind of, has been a big trend the past few years. So I heard someone doing a, you know, a bunch of things like uh, pickles, aging pickles in a whiskey barrel. Um, and then I figured we could probably do our honey. So, you know, I tried to find and see if anyone else was doing it and I couldn't see anyone doing it. But I found a bunch of whiskey barrel aged maple syrups. So that kind of gave me the confidence that it would work. And then we went from there. We got our first barrel from Stranahan's and, you know, kind of did a test process on it. And then um, got our ratios down to where we wanted them and started it for real. Awesome. So are you still using Stranahan's barrels or are you using other facilities? No. So they were, they were just for our first test. Um, right now, our partners are Spirit Hound out of Lyons, um, Laws Whiskey House in Denver, and Branch and Barrel out of Centennial. So those are our three partners right now that we're getting barrels from. Okay, so what does the process for this honey look like? Give us an idea. You get the barrel at your facility, and then what happens? So we get the barrel at our facility. We have them all in these special, um, really nice custom-made racks that have wheels on them that we can spin them on. So we pop the corks of them, uh, fill it up with about 300 pounds of honey, um, and then every other day or so we turn the barrels and you know kind of get it all soaked in throughout all the wood. Um, and then after the 100 days, we pop the cork again, drain all the honey back out of it, and filter all the char from it. And then that is the final product. And so there obviously is some honey that remains in the barrel. What happens to that? Yes. So, um, well, so for Spirit Hound, for example, we leave purposely about 5 to 10 pounds of honey in there. And then they take the barrels, uh, so the honey-soaked barrel, and they finish their two-year whiskey in it for about two months. So it's like a honey barrel finished whiskey. So that's kind of, that's what they're doing with them anyway. That's a unique finishing for a spirit. And it's a, like a kind of a good way, I think, to get around any additives in your product. Right. Yeah, exactly. If you take the whiskey out and then you put honey back in and you take the honey out and then you put the whiskey back in, what? It's in the barrel. So that's clever crafty, I think. Yes, absolutely. So do you ever do branding uh, with the different spirits houses? So Laws, for instance, is there a Laws whiskey barrel aged honey label or is it just general? So uh, I'll answer that. So we have several different branding opportunities that we have with it. Currently, Laws, Centennial, and Branch and Barrel all have our branding on the front and a top label that distinguishes which distillery uh, barrel the product was aged in. And those top labels have their brands on them. And then we've actually had uh, quite a few folks approach us for kind of a reversal of that, where they want a product that is just in their tasting rooms, not available anywhere else, in which case they're doing the primary branding and we're sticking a top label on that has our logo on it. Are you doing that just in Colorado or elsewhere in the country as well? Uh, just Colorado. We are um, 
cutting the path, I think, for other distilleries elsewhere. If you've ever been to Kentucky uh, to do the bourbon trail, they have, um, every distillery has a bourbon flavored truffle that is specific to their distillery. And so while you get a truffle everywhere you go that is flavored with their product, um, every one of them has that that truffle. And so you could be the next, you could be the craft version of the chocolate truffle for the bourbon trail. That's a good idea. So tell me a little bit about your background, Beth. So I'm retired from institutional food and I have a master's in business administration from the University of New Mexico. And when my kids got to be in about middle school, one of them was sort of hell on wheels. And so I came home to be the maintainer and uh, at that time we had some beehives and then uh, we started getting more beehives and then we found out we really enjoyed it and so about eight years ago we got very serious about uh, working it as a business and branding etc and so we trademarked uh, last year on the uh, logo and the name and then we're trademarking this year on our new tagline which is exponentially better. And so it looks like you have lots of different kinds of infused products. Have you done anything with CBD yet? Uh, we have some CBD in the uh, queue. Uh, we have just released three more infusions. So the first infusion we did, and which is why Jamie decided he'd like to try a whiskey barrel aged, is because of the success of the first one. And the first one is a rose petal infused honey, which is a collaboration with Happy Heart Farm CSA up in Fort Collins. She gives us the rose petals and we steep them in the honey and then strain them out. And it's a lovely product. And it won a national award called the Good Food Award. And so the success of that prompted us to look at some other options. So the whiskey barrel aged honey's been out for what a year and a half now? Year and a half. About years. a year and a half now, and then uh, just this week we are releasing three new infusions. We have got a saffron vanilla, an espresso, and a fennel pollen. And uh, Jamie's uh, latest iteration is the espresso. Tell me a little bit about what production would look like for uh, those infusions. Clearly, you can't have a big barrel of um, rose petals. At least they don't typically come that way. <laughs> so right. how are you right. infusing them? Uh, how are you infusing the botanicals, I guess, into the honey product? Yeah, we are using just the buckets. So when we produce our honey, we put it into 60-pound buckets and then we work the ratios on those uh, infusions that we're doing until we get it the way we like it. And then uh, we just strain out the infused material and uh, pour it into their respective uh, packaging. It sounds sticky. Is it a sticky operation? Uh, we're pretty good about keeping it really unsticky because it's a bad scene if it is. <laughs> <laughs> So how did you, so how has your business grown, I guess, in the 
time that you've started it. Do you have, you did a TED talk a little bit ago, maybe a year or two, and you had 60 hives at that time. Tell me what you've got now. Uh, we were at about 100 now, and we're aiming for 200. But in addition to our own production, we buy and sell a lot of uh, other people's honey. And so we are, we're at double digit growth and have been for ever. Um, and so hopefully this year, I think we'll do about a half million gross. So tell me a little bit about um, the varieties of bees that we have here in Colorado. I was surprised to learn that we have more than just a few. Um, so tell me, I guess, which varieties you work with and some of the others that are maybe more helpful in the agricultural sector. Okay, so in Colorado, we have um, documented 1,111 species of bees here, over 950 of which are considered to be residents. CU is just completing a major survey of southeast Colorado, excuse me, southwest Colorado, and we can anticipate those numbers going up substantially. The um, rest of those bees do not produce honey. And the reason they do not produce honey is because they are not colony bees. It is a colony that produces honey. So all the rest of those bees are solitary bees, uh, with the exception of bumblebees, which form a very small, small nest, but not a colony, not to the extent that honeybees do. So honeybees' uh, numbers in the summertime are roughly between 60 and 100,000 insects, and bumblebees at their peak are at about 300. So you, all of your hives are chemical-free. Correct. Tell me a little bit about the difference, I guess, between a chemical-free hive and one that would have chemicals. Are they all intrinsically chemical-free? No. So beekeeping is like any other aspect of agriculture. You can run it like an industrialized operation, or you can run it like an organic operation. So we run ours chemical-free, which are organic acids for treatment of various diseases. They're all certified organic, but we cannot keep our bees organically because we are in an agricultural area that is not operated uh, exclusively organically. So bees travel... Uh, two and a half mile radius from the hive, and that is about uh, 26,000 acres. And there is no place in Colorado that is 26,000 acres of organic ag. Uh, so uh, we can't make a claim to organic honey production, but we can manage our bees as best we can without uh, chemicals and pesticides, etc. in there. So are there places in the country that can do organic honey? No, <laughs> not in any quantity. All of the organic honey in this country is imported from okay. Brazil. So tell me about the type of bee, I guess, that you're working with. Are you working with oh, a couple of species, one species? Uh, we work with mutts. 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 I have one under my desk right now, but it's a mutt canine, not a bee. Yeah, so uh, I don't uh, give much credence to uh, races of bees. And so uh, we have the ability to control 
uh, our production queens uh, via other methodologies, and so we do that. And so talk to me about colony loss. I believe that's the right term. Um, you had mentioned that it was averaging over 30% a year over the last decade. Is that kind of what you're seeing, 30% of your bees dying off per season? We hope that's all we lose per season. We have had years where we have lost substantially more. And we have no years where we have lost substantially less anymore. And so we like to say that there are five P's that are influencing bee health. So the first is poor forage, which is sort of a stretch on a P, but nonetheless. <laughs> so poor forage is lack of flowers uh, in agricultural areas. It's edge-to-edge monoculture plantings. In urban areas, it's turf. So we do not have enough flowers in our landscape to feed bees properly. The second is pesticides. Pesticides are used ubiquitously in both urban and agricultural environments. Um, They're used unnecessarily, and they are wreaking havoc with the natural world. And bugs, being at the bottom of the food chain, are paying dearly for that use. So the third thing is something called a pest. And in this particular case with honeybees, that pest is called a varroa mite. And a varroa mite is an insect that pierces the exoskeleton of the bee. And if you are a human and you stay up too late and eat like crap and don't get enough sleep and then somebody comes along and you get a gaping wound, you don't heal very well. Well, the same thing happens with bees. They do not have the wherewithal with their poor diets and their pesticide exposures to adequately defend themselves against the pest. So... That pest, because it's a relatively large pest on a um, on the insect, it is incredibly damaging. And that wound then allows P number four in, which is pathogens. So you have these synergistic interactions between the first three that causes uh, pathogens that are normally present in the hive to rise to virulent levels, and then that is just another blow to that colony. So those are the four that are commonly put out, and I add a fifth to that, and that is politics. And it is because we know all of those things are messing with bee health, and we don't do anything about it. All of those things mess with people health, too. Yes, they uh, so do. So I'm sad to hear that the bees have just as good of a health plan as the rest of us. Yes. Um, we definitely have a culture right now, I think, that is sick and is focusing on the wrong things. Um, and it's making everybody stressed out, ill, unwell, unhealthy. I think my little sister says it best with respect to human health. We have traded cheap food for expensive health care. That's true, we have. So tell me a little bit about um, maybe some better plant choices, I guess, that we could make here in Colorado as far as flowers. Is there some flowers that are better than others, or is it 
just to a level of need where any flower is a good flower for bees. Well, certainly any flower is a good flower for uh, certain bees, but if you really want to take care of those 1,100 species of bees, then we need native flowers. So the general rule is plant flowers, don't spray them. And then talk to me a little bit about monoculture. I think you touched on it a little bit. Um, you live in Berthoud, which is surrounded by farmland. And so I would think one type of monoculture would be like a crop that's growing on several acres, thousands of acres. Um, here in Colorado, we grow lots of cereal grains, uh, sunflowers, um, wheat, things like that. Correct. So, so in my area, we have wheat, we have corn, we have barley, we have alfalfa, we have sugar beets. The only one of those that is providing any nutrition to insects is alfalfa. And if alfalfa is being grown for cattle... And is that cattle, grass? Alfalfa is a beautiful purple flowering forage plant that is fed for to cattle and horses. If it's being grown for cattle feed, then it gets cut at maximum protein content, which is 10% bloom. So the only thing that blooms out of those six species is the one they cut as soon as it blooms. Um, so, and then I guess an urban example of that you covered earlier would be turf, which yeah. is the lowest food producing thing that we have in America. It takes up a ton of water, a ton of pesticides, and it doesn't give you a tremendous amount in return. Correct. There is no value to turf, to any other insects but turf pests. So what would be a good alternative that would help with the bees? Yeah, to help, well, yeah, we need to, we need to reduce turf in Colorado from the water usage standpoint. Uh, but um, we, here at our house, we have Dutch clover and we have thyme. And those are flowering herbs, right? Uh, clover is a flowering I don't know. I don't think it's an herb um, forb, I guess. And uh, but it, we use Dutch clover, so it's a real short-growing uh, flowering plant. Same thing with the thyme. So it doesn't need to be mowed, and it's beautiful, and it's food for bugs. And so, what uh, would you suggest? And I think that I struggle with this in my tiny little yard here in Inglewood, um, getting that three seasons of flowers uh, to support bees. Do you have any practical tips for approaching that? There are uh, the Colorado State Beekeepers Association has produced a publication in conjunction with the Colorado Master Gardeners and some other business partners. Uh, BBB Seed in Boulder, and then some other beekeeping organizations that is a list of plants that provide three seasons of nectar and pollen to insects. So it starts uh, mostly with uh, shrubs. Dandelions are huge in the spring. And then uh, we go into, you know, your summer blooming stuff is pretty much anything. And then fall blooming, you start getting into, again, shrubs, trees. These are, people don't think of those things. They think of flowers, but, but trees 
are huge nectar and pollen providers. Well, we have at least one crab apple and one apple tree that we are donating to the cause of feeding bees in our neighborhood. So you better you better get another apple tree if you ever want to see apples. We get uh, some small apples as it is. I think there's another there's a neighboring apple that that sneaks its pollen over into our yard. Yeah, they have to be cross pollinated. <laughs> So, and then you also mentioned some things that the state might be able to take a a look at doing, like roadside planting programs and things like that. Is that something that you're working on um, or would like to work on in the state of Colorado? Yeah. So I have a nonprofit that uh, I formed with some other ladies a few years back called People and Pollinators Action Network, PPAN for short. And PPAN is a 501c3 that strictly works on pollinator policy issues in Colorado. So we uh, joined with the Colorado Department of Transportation and um, got together and got the Colorado Pollinator Highway designated, which is Highway 76 from Julesburg into the Denver area and planted 13 acres uh, of roadside, or 13 miles of roadside last year on that. Uh, and then we've got a long way to go, but we need, uh, we need support from the public. We need support from communities that have these roadways through them and uh, to get more plantings done uh, around the state. But roadsides are a great migratory path for insects. And so it's a terrific opportunity to get them some nutrition on the road south and north. Talk to me a little bit about insecticides. What, uh, they're all bad, okay. Uh, but is there one like a neo, neonaticide that is particularly troublesome for bees? Yeah, the neonicotinoids is the class of insecticides to which you are referring so there is a uh, some work being done on trying to limit consumer use of those products but the bottom line is is that they are used as seed coatings on nearly every major crop across the country so if you are a corn or a soy farmer in the midwest it is not possible for you to even acquire seeds that do not have an insecticide already pre-applied to them and as you can imagine when you apply an insecticide a chemically derived insecticide to hundreds of millions of acres year after year after year we now have an unbelievable resistance problem. They don't work anymore. Uh, So are they developing something that is perhaps more bee-friendly or are they going less bee-friendly? They are going less bee-friendly. We do, I do want to tell you that we had somebody on our podcast from the state of New York who has a sister, I think, that was doing a doctorate in bee entomology. And so they purchased an entire farm uh, in upstate New York in order to do a grain to glass distillery 
but they're also doing bee research up there. And so what kind of programs, I guess, could a distiller do um, in the spring, in the summer uh, to help support bee pollination? Because clearly they're important, whether you're making a brandy with fruit or you're making um, cereal grains based product, they're important so that we can eat and have delicious spirits. What are some, some types of ideas, I guess, for programs we can do in distilleries to support bees? Well, we like to say in the beer business that there's a bee in every beer, and there is. So uh -huh. the same thing in a distiller glass, right? So I think what anybody can do not just distillers in particular is to start buying organic we need to stop the demand for the product there's no reason for people to stop supplying the product when people are continuing to demand it and so we need to rethink some basic tenets of agricultural production and need to pay more for our food. And, and we will have healthier, more nutritious food as a result of that. And we will have better tasting food as a result of that. And the natural consequence of all that is that you will have better distilling luck with those products also. I know that the honey, I believe it's the National Honey Board, was also working with the distillers in the last year to try to promote honey being used in their products. Do you sell bulk honey to any distilleries? Uh, they just got done doing that. Uh, last year we worked with them on, with brewers, on a honey tour that they, and honey uh, teaching you know, how to use honey in, brew, in beers. And, and we took them to some of our hives down in the Denver metro area uh, over at the Colorado Convention Center as part of that. The distilling thing, I'm not certain where it was held at, but it was quite recently. So I'm not certain how that's going to move out through the, the marketplace. Uh, I haven't had anybody holler at me requesting honey for, uh, for a particular product. Uh, but we, we certainly think this new fennel pollen honey is going to make a terrific gin. And, uh, and we want to get somebody on board yeah. to run a test on that, baby. Okay. Well, we might have some uh, inquiries, and I will definitely send them your way. The last thing I wanted to talk with you about is a lot of people are afraid of bees, and I think that you had mentioned on one of your TED Talks or in your TED Talk that the Western Yellow Jacket was actually uh, responsible for most of the stings that happen here in Colorado. Are there any tips that you can give us to help people uh, distinguish between the two? Western Yellow Jackets are a nuisance wasp. They are black and yellow stripy. They are smooth bodied because they are not pollinators. We have a side-by-side -side image on the state beekeepers website and the two insects do not look remotely alike. So a bee is sort of a tannish, brownish, very fuzzy, much smaller insect. 
if you have something that you think is a beehive in your house, it's uh, generally uh, the first thing that I ask people to tell me is, do you have three or four going out, or do you have a thousand going in and out? Because a yellow jacket nest doesn't get up to probably more than 500 to 1,000 insects. There's exceptions to that, but generally speaking, whereas honeybee colonies, we already mentioned, are in the 60 to 100,000 insects in the summertime. So there's a dramatic difference in um, the number of people that are, or number of people, the number of insects that are entering and exiting a structure. Uh, the other thing is, is that bees are incredibly purposeful. So bees, uh, bees are vegetarians. They live on uh, nectar and pollen. And uh, yellow jackets are uh, not vegetarians. And so they are the ones that are nuisances at parties. And they'll actually, you know, sit on hamburgers and things like that because they are um, uh, carnivores. And so they have, they're totally different behaviors, totally different uh, insects and when a third of your food supply depends on one and not the other, it would be good to know the difference. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's probably a good idea to know that. Do you have anything else you want to add to our distillers? We are more than happy to custom brand and work with anybody else uh, that is interested in working with us. We've got racking system built for uh, 12 uh barrels so we've got room if people want to do some custom labeling for their tasting rooms so thank you very much for being with us today and telling us about your good food award and your award-winning honey i'm very interested in the projects that you're doing with infusions and i will include all of your information on our show notes page so that the distillers that listen to our podcast can check you out all right. Well, it's wonderful talking with you. Thank you both. You're Thank welcome. You. And thanks for finding us and calling us. Good talking to you. A big thank you to Beth Conray and the Bee Squared crew for talking about the challenges bees are facing in our country. As you're planting your gardens this winter, spare a thought for the bees and add in some native grasses, flowering plants, and trees to your mix. Help your local bees combat poor forage in your own area by supporting roadside plantings that are friendly to our winged pollinators. I know Beth is also looking for some rum barrels to make their next product iteration. If you've got a lead for her, you can reach out to us via our website and we will connect you. Well, that's it for this episode of the Distilling Craft Podcast. Tune in next time for an interview with one of our own architects here at Dalkita for a robust discussion about designing and building your first distillery. Do your best to stay safe out there and remember to support your small businesses by wearing your masks. It's the key to having an open economy with no more lockdowns. We've almost made it through 2020 and there is hope on the horizon. We can do this. We've got more new shows and improvements on the way for 2021. Of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that a giant thank you goes out to you for downloading and listening to this episode of our podcast. Don't forget to like, share, subscribe, 
even if you like just a tiny bit of today's show. It really helps out with our show's vital statistics. If you want more information about this show, go to the show notes on our website, www.dalkita.com slash show notes, where we will have links to the people, places, and things mentioned today. There is even a real live transcript of the show to share with all your friends. And you can post a short comment for our team to obsess over, dissect, and even infer your tone and judge your grammar. Our theme music was composed by Jason Shaw and is used under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. The final shout out goes to the man that puts all of this together, our sound editor, Daniel Phillips of Zero Crossing Productions. Until next time, seriously guys, stay safe out there. I'm Colleen Moore from Dalkita, and this has been the Distilling Craft Podcast. Dalkita is committed to getting intelligent and quality design solutions out of the craft distilling industry. Check them out at their website, dalkita.com. That's D-A-L-K-I-T-A dot com. Until next time, this has been Distilling Craft. Cheers.